Welcome to Profiles in Risk, the INS Nerds podcast, the only recurring podcast dedicated to insurance careers, insure tech startups, and insurance current events. We are your hosts, Carly Burnham, Tony Cañas, and Nick Lamparelli. You can find all of our podcasts, show notes, and other great insurance-related content at insnerds.com. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Profiles and Risk, the INS Nerds podcast. This is a special recording. My guest today is Ivan Maddox of Intermap. Ivan is the Executive Vice President of Commercial Products, and he's actually also a good friend of mine. Ivan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Happy to be here. What this took so long for you? Podcast in a long time. <laughs> what took so long for you to get on? I don't know. I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> it's my fault. Ivan, who are you? Um, what, what is your background, and how does it relate to insurance? Okay. Um, like everybody else in insurance, my background does not relate to insurance. I'm a geomatics engineer by training, which means I spent four years studying how to measure the surface of the earth. Um, for 20 years after university, I did a lot of mapping around the world. And then four years ago, I began to leverage that knowledge into creating a little product called Insight Pro for underwriting blood risk. It just so happens that uh, blood risk is highly correlated with elevations and mapping, and it was a really nice fit for me. So in the last four years, I've kind of become a bit of a, uh, a hobbyist, flood insurance kind of guy. It's one of my great interests now. And uh, bringing products to market, of course, Insight Pro is uh, really close to my heart still since we built it from nothing. So as people begin to use that software to underwrite private flood in the U.S., uh, it's very exciting for, for me and the whole team that was behind that product. So um, you might have seen me on LinkedIn. I like to write about this stuff. And uh, the funny thing about insurance is how interesting it turns out to be. That was the, best, the, the nicest surprise about insurance. It's actually quite interesting. That's how we met. I, in my research for doing flood, I bumped into a blog called The Risks of Hazard, which I loved because it was a play on insurance hazard and also the Dukes of Hazard, I think. So that oh, was yeah, absolutely. that was great. And for anyone that's listening, um, you want to read this blog, even if flood is not on your radar. Because what Ivan does is, first of all, he's a you're a great writer, very entertaining, uh, and you make flood insurance, which is very or flood, basically flood assessment, which is very could be very considered very dull. You actually make it very engaging, which I love. But uh, here's the interesting thing. You mentioned flood and insurance in the same question. And I guess the million-dollar, billion-dollar question is, I thought flood was not insurable. What's, what's the deal with that? Well, it turns out that it is insurable. And anywhere else in the world you go that has a developed economy – actually insures flood with insurance companies. Um, the United States has a very unique setup where they've got this, uh, the NFIP in place. What's and, the NFIP? Uh, Explain that. 
Okay, the National Flood Insurance Program, which is FEMA's program in order to put cover on what they deem to be high-risk locations, properties, so that uh, essentially the banks can rest assured that their investments, when they when they put mortgages on these high-risk properties, is protected. So uh, the United States has this program where actual insurance companies until recently have been more or less excluded from insuring property from from flood. So luckily that's changing though. So what what is in Insight Pro? What are some of the key factors that make that now make flood insurable? Like why was it not insurable? Now why what has changed that make it insurable? Well one of the reasons that the United States is a little bit behind other countries is the sheer size of it and the size of the, of the problem as well. Um, you look at some of the biggest economies in Europe, for example, the UK or Germany or France, uh, big economies, lots of property, but they're kind of small countries. Germany is essentially the size of Pennsylvania, maybe plus West Virginia or something. It's relatively small spatially. So they're mapping the rivers and the flood hazard in somewhere like France or Germany or the UK is, is a lot simpler, essentially, than the, than the United States. The United States is vast. And pretty much everywhere you go where there's flood risk, there's property as well. And uh, some of the most expensive property in the world, in fact. So uh, that's always been one of the problems for getting insurance on flood going in the, in the United States the sheer size of the area that needed to be mapped. Um, technology over the last 15 years has more or less eliminated that challenge. Uh, Intermap, where I work, is one of the com- companies that is really kind of taking care of that. And uh, there's other companies now as well that have created decent um, elevation data for various parts of the country. So really the biggest challenge historically has been the size of the country. Being able to create maps that dealt with the flood risk in a sensible way has been really daunting. No more. Okay, so let's walk the audience through the technical challenge of trying to assess the flood risk and ultimately trying to underwrite it for for an insurer or a reinsurer. So what are some of the key factors that that have held back the ability of the market to get to this particular point in time? What are some of those key factors? And uh, walk us through Insight Pro and how you resolve some of that. So the biggest piece of information that is needed for flood, whether it's risk assessment or, or figuring out your aggregation, is, is elevation. And not just any elevation. You need to have bare earth elevation. You can't have elevations that have buildings in it. You can't have elevations that have the tops of trees in it. You need elevations of the ground because when the water is beginning to rise, uh, you know, it's going to flood the ground. It's not going to flood the tops of trees. So elevation is where it really all starts. Once you've got good bare earth elevation, you need to have where the water is accurately mapped. And then you need to have where the buildings are accurately mapped. If you've got those three ingredients, you can assess flood risk. Essentially, it's really just about understanding the chances of the water coming up out of its natural pathway or its natural bed 
and rising to where it begins to damage properties. And if you've got elevation, a good location of the building, and a good location of where the water is, you can do that. So which which of those factors is in Insight Pro and how how is that how are how is that data represented? So all of them are in Insight Pro and uh, we're lucky in that about ten years ago Intermap undertook a, a gigantic mapping project to actually uh, create an elevation data set for the whole country with various elevations. It was a, a an incredible investment. It took eight years to do it. It took a fleet of aircraft flying our mapping technology to do it. We spent years with a production facility in Indonesia, removing every single house, tree, building, bridge from the surface of the earth to create that bare earth elevation model. And uh, so by 2008, 2009, Intermap had a data set that was perfect for countrywide flood risk assessment. No one else has access to that, so I have a bit of an unfair advantage when I'm bringing a product to market, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> there are alternatives, but they're not as uh, dependable as, as what we have at Intermap. So once you've got the elevation, then the trick for underwriting it is that you need to be able to assess the risk at a single location and not across a portfolio of locations or um, you know, hoping to average out inconsistencies in your data. So ideally, you're able to look at flood risk through a few different lenses at a single point, and then that way you're not hoping that your, um, your data is accurate at that point. If you've got multiple looks at the risk, then you can kind of converge to a solution without having to use a lot of points to converge to that solution. That's a little complex for a podcast maybe, but basically... The idea is that if you're assessing a, a house for flood risk, you don't want to just use one way of measuring that risk because you don't know if that's dependable there or not. It's better to use two, three, four, or five different ways of evaluating flood risk, whether they're flood models, whether they're empirical measurements to a source of flooding, whether they're empirical measurements to um, someone else's theoretical flood height, these can all be combined into a single risk score, and that's what we do. And that's what we've found people that are actually underwriting flood insurance properly are, uh, are, are believing to the point where they're actually growing their business with it. We've had quite a lot of luck uh, predicting where flooding is going to happen and where it's not going to happen. But wait, wait, wait. Don't you need a flood map? Can't we just, can't we just use flood maps to kind of delineate who has flood risk and who doesn't have flood risk? Historically, that's what's been done. Of course, um, there's these funny maps called firms, flood insurance rate maps that people have used to assess flood risk. And these are, these are maps that uh, FEMA makes and uh, they've got these zones on them. And the, the zone is supposedly correlated to a certain type of risk. But um, if anyone that has seen or used a firm um, can attest, they're not really the right tool. Those tools are rate maps. So they're actually a marketing tool. They're intended to tell um, underwriters how much to charge for a very specific type of insurance, policies from the NFIP. To use them as risk maps, though, is a little bit of a fallacy because 
they are very generalized. So they have these zones called A zones and X zones and stuff like that, where they've got uniform rates applied. So if everything within this giant pancake of a, of a flood zone is one rate, but the surface of the earth is not a giant pancake. The risk of every home within that A zone is different because some are higher than others and are closer to the water than others. And it's important to, to be able to denote what the risk is at each property instead of just looking at what zone it is on a map. So anyone that uses a rate map to measure risk is bound to get themselves into trouble. Um, you don't have to look any further than the, than the outfit that made those maps to see how much trouble you can get into. The NFIP, of course, is famously insolvent to the tune of $24 billion over its history. And uh, essentially, that's what happens when you use these rate maps to uh, run an insurance program. Okay, so what you're saying is that you could be in a flood zone and actually not have as much flood exposure as someone that's outside of a flood zone. Like the flood zone itself just does not provide enough information. So you, you, you could be buying a home, not in a flood zone, think you're a okay. Yet you could have significant flood, flooding risk. Absolutely. Yep. No, with, uh, with our tool, we're, we're using data that's completely independent of what's in those flood rate maps. So we can actually make, fairly um, empirical uh, determinations of flood risk and compare them to what the rate maps have to say. And yeah, it's pretty easy to find properties that are outside of the high risk area that are higher risk than properties literally across the street that are in the high risk areas. So there's absolutely, well, I wouldn't say absolutely, but there's very little correlation between the rates charged by the NFIP and flood risk. At best, they're kind of a, a random sampling of what flood risk is. So what kinds of floods are we talking about? Give the, and what does Insight Pro handle? What are you, um, when it comes to flood, are we just talking about the things that happen like in Sandy with hurricanes? Why don't you walk the listeners through all the different types of flooding that can occur and what uh, what the industry needs to capture in order to be able to ensure it correctly. Sure. So uh, the first type of flood risk to talk about really is, is straightforward river flooding. So this is when a lot of rain falls upstream or a lot of snow melts upstream and, uh, and the rivers rise and they come up and they burst their banks and they begin to flood property that's built along the river. That's called fluvial flooding, and uh, it's pretty common. You know, the, the classic examples of that recently have been in West Virginia. Uh, Louisiana and Baton Rouge last year had some. Maryland had some last year. Um, about nine years ago, Cedar Rapids had big, big, big fluvial, or sorry, fluvial floods, big river floods in Cedar Rapids. So it's, it's pretty common type of flooding. Typically, every year in the United States, there's five or six events that are caused by um, sort of millennial type weather, you know, one in a thousand year rains that they get called, and uh, and they create these rivers flooding. Um, the second type of flooding is pluvial, which is rain flooding. So it's basically um, a real lot of rain falling fast and in a concentrated area. 
and it more or less pools before it even swells the rivers. And, uh, you know, it might flood properties as it, as it moves towards the rivers. It might flood property because they're kind of in low lying areas, uh, and there's no river in sight. It's pretty typical to find this type of flooding in places like Phoenix. Um, Houston has a problem with this type of flooding. Uh, this is uh, not as widespread as fluvial flooding, but it's every bit as damaging when it does happen. It does tend to be in highly localized areas, though, just compared to, to fluvial flooding as well. It's where, the, it's where the clouds burst and just dump rain on one place for a while. The third type is the trickiest, though. The third type is storm surge, which you get from hurricanes. Um, and this is tricky because for insurers, for decades, they've been covering hurricane losses, but not storm surge. So um, the, the, the hazard itself is actually very easy to understand. It's really just related to how close you are to the coast, how high above the ocean you are, and what kind of storm is blowing the water from the ocean onto land where your property is. Pretty straightforward um, geometry. The trick, though, is, is for insurers to... Um, break the parallel part of hurricanes. A lot of damage is caused by wind. A lot of damage is caused by surge. Um, it, historically, insurers have really struggled to break them apart, much to the frustration of homeowners and, and policyholders. The insurers in that situation really don't want to get into a nitpick conversation about whether it was the glass breaking and then the water coming in that caused the damage or the fact that the wind caused the window to break and then the water came in. Um, that's a, that's a conversation that nobody really needs to have. But historically, that's exactly what happens after Sandy and all the other big hurricanes. Well, it's a conversation you and I have all the time because, yeah. um, I love speaking with insurance professionals that think that, oh, we don't cover flood. And I have to always remind them if you cover wind, you cover flood because if you're anywhere near the coast, there are going to be wind claims or flood claims that you end up paying in wind claims. And, you know, I, I go back to Katrina and look at, you know, State Farm and Allstate and the amount that they had to pay in court, court costs. It's, uh, you know, something that you and I constantly remark on. It's like they're already paying for flood losses. They might as well they might as well just ramp up and include flood because they're already paying for it. They might as well collect a premium for it. Exactly. No, there's other examples as well. Anyone covering business interruption is ipso facto covering flood. Um, in Canada, there was a recent example in uh, 2013, I think it was, when uh, Calgary flooded. There was no overland, as they call it up there, flood coverage in place from any of the carriers. It's all sewage backup and stuff like that. Well, Calgary had about 6,000 homes damaged by pretty straightforward fluvial flooding, simple runoff from the mountain, and uh, and the river peaked. And uh, all those carriers ended up pay- paying all those claims for flood, even though they didn't collect a single dollar of premium, because their their customers, all of their customers, you know, were expecting to be handled when there was a, a disaster. And none of the insurers found it within their interests, essentially, to deny thousands of claims because they hadn't covered it. So whether underwriters 
know it or not, a lot of the time flood backs its way into the coverage that they write. And it does make a lot of sense just to underwrite it properly, understand what the risk is, charge a price for it, bundle it ideally, or you can tack it on as kind of a an endorsement or whatever. But uh, you may as well be collecting premium for it because if that place floods, you're probably going to be on the hook for something. Yep, yep, no, it's um, we see it over and over. It's um, you know, you get back to what's the different definition of insanity. Um, these things just keep happening over and over, and the the solution is hiding in plain sight. It's right there. Cover it, pay, price it, get premium for it. And so a lot of these problems magically, I wouldn't say go away. We are dealing with natural catastrophes, but um, it, it, you know, you, I think you generate some goodwill with your customer, right. By doing something like that. So uh, uh, clearly I think the, the next question would be, well, what's, what's the potential opportunity? What's, what's in it besides another source of premium, how how big of a market do you think this is? What's the opportunity that's presenting itself here for insurers and rangers? Well, I mean, so now we're talking about the protection gap. This is um, this is where there's exposure to some sort of peril, flood, where there's no coverage. Uh, you know, you don't need to look further than Baton Rouge last year to know the size of it. Baton Rouge in Louisiana, a state famous for flooding, had those big floods, and 15% of the property was insured. 85% was uninsured. So, you know, that's all going to be um, disaster relief payments from FEMA and stuff like that. So immediately you can see that there's a giant gap there where premiums should be getting collected by insurers, and homeowners should be buying the coverage because there's obviously uh, a danger of it happening. But uh, what's the opportunity? Well, it depends on who you ask and how you calculate it. If you ask a conservative insurer, they would look at the NFIP with its handful of million policies and say, okay, well, multiply that by an average premium and there's the opportunity. So using rough numbers, that would be about 3 to $4 billion of uh, gross written premium in any given year. That's peanuts though, because we know that there's the hazard outside of the FEMA zones where people typically buy the product. So there's 125 million residential properties in the country. Let's just say each of those should be paying an average of $500 flood premium. We're up to $600 billion. Wow. That's more like it. Yeah. Yeah. And like you mentioned, mentioned, um, you know, there, there really isn't, there really isn't a property that's immune and, and the way I like to describe this is that you could be on the top of a mountain and still have flood risk. You know, if, if the water, if the water, um, you know, water can, can basically, uh, take away the support for the foundation and the house can tip over. Like there's a lot of things that can happen in a flood besides just water getting in. And, and it's just a big pet peeve of mine that, uh, people outside of flood zones, um, feel that they don't have to buy flood insurance and getting back to the Baton Rouge uh, uh, storms of last year, which, which I just looked at the NFIP list and it's in the top 10. So here's a non hurricane rainstorm. That's now in the top 10 for largest insurable loss. 
what what is most interesting about that particular event, and you cued me into this, was that just before the event occurred, FEMA changed their flood zone maps in that area, and basically a lot of those people that got significant flood damage got bumped out of the flood zone. They decided to cancel their flood insurance because, hey, I'm not in a flood zone, so I don't have this exposure, and now they're suffering for it, which is just a prima facie example of if you're not in a flood zone, you still have flood risk. It's just it, those flood maps are not indicative of your total overall exposure. No, absolutely. Louisiana is famous for this. Um, they recently just changed the New Orleans maps as well. The, the flood zones are significantly smaller than they used to be. And it's not flood risk that's driving those boundaries. It's, it's um, real estate prices and development needs. And as they continued their rebuilding after Katrina, they deemed it necessary to not have so many homes in the high-risk, i.e. obligatory purchase zones, because it would have slowed down the real estate market a little bit too much. Fair enough. But because your home or your business used to be in a flood zone, and then all of a sudden the new map has it outside of the flood zone, your flood risk hasn't overnight changed from high-risk to low-risk. It hasn't changed at all. All that's changed is, is that the NFIP has deemed it expedient for one reason or another, and, and the NFIP serves many purposes to not insist that your property be insured in order to lend against it. No comment on the risk. It's just saying you don't have to have flood insurance to get a mortgage. Different conversation that's getting confusing for a lot of homeowners and a lot of property owners. I used Insight Pro to look at some properties in the southern Louisiana area. Uh, it's a, it's a, I think when people think about insuring flood and how it's uninsurable, I think they think of Louisiana because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you go anywhere near that New Orleans area, it's essentially below sea level. You, you have to, the, the levees have to exist in order to protect the city. Um, it's essentially in a no-win situation. Like the events are going to come. They're going to be significant. It's going to cause significant flooding. Katrina will happen again. This has nothing to do with climate change or anything like that. It's just a clear situation of very, very bad elevation and a lot of exposure. Yep, absolutely. And uh, this kind of leads to the direction that a lot of people – within the industry think that the NFIP needs to evolve towards um, as, as insurance companies begin to underwrite more and more of the flood risk in the country, you know, there's a little bit of debate around what the, what the role of the NFIP needs to be in the future and insurer of last resort is a, is a role that's pretty regularly suggested for the NFIP in the future. A little bit of a clearinghouse that just takes on the risk that's too high for, for most carriers or any carrier to fit into their appetite. But, uh, you know, that remains to be seen what happens. There's pros and cons to that concept. But, uh, you know, the fact of the matter will remain. There's going to be some properties that are have been around for centuries in some cases that are high flood risk. And ensuring them will be a challenge in the future, no matter what system yeah. we put in place. Yeah. I, I think our common message is that flood is insurable, but not every property. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, strictly speaking, every 
property is insurable. It's just that the rate gets to the point where it ceases to make any sense. Yeah, yeah, I, and I've seen that, especially in New Orleans. Just uh, amazing, you know, getting to expected losses in the five to ten percent range. It's essentially uninsurable because no one can, you know, no one can afford that kind of rate. You're, after ten years, you've essentially put the same amount of money back into the building that the building is worth. You, you'd be better off putting it into a, you know, a savings account and basically self-insuring. So. Um, what, what is your, the, I was just going to say, you've just described the German flood insurance model. It's up to property owners to be able to self-insure. Interesting. Interesting. Well, what, what's your preference for the NFIP? Should they continue? How, how should they, how should they exist? Um, I haven't fully made up my mind yet on, on what the answer needs to be. I don't think anyone has, there's not enough information. Uh, it really depends on how, private flood uh, continues to evolve, but I think that it's likely that the NFIP is going to end up being that insurer of last resort or possibly a kind of reinsurance pool, kind of like flood re in the UK. Um, It's getting shrunk down to that, I think. And it makes sense. There's a lot of expertise and a lot of uh, technology available now for, for the insurance companies to handle the vast majority of the flood risk in the country and uh, NFIP might just be shrunk down to that insurer of last resort. It's true. It won't be solvent. It's going to have a, it's going to require funding from the government just like it does now. But overall, it's probably going to be cheaper because not only is it going to be um, insolvent, but on a much smaller scale, but overall the savings should come also from the fact that FEMA is not going to have to pay so much in the form of disaster relief because ideally everything exposed to flood is insured in the future and disaster relief kind of becomes a lot smaller than it is now if it still exists at all. So uh, ultimately it's probably going to move towards that direction. Yeah. I'm, I'm torn between the two models. Um, I, I do, I do think the insurer of last resort is probably the most appropriate one. Um, I, I kind of like the idea of the reinsurer, but I kind of hate it as well because just having the NFIP involved to me, it, it creates the opportunity for bureaucracy. And so for, for anyone that's listening, um, just, you know, there's the NFIP has really struggled in, in claims paying. Um, you know, there's just a giant bureaucracy when these claims occur and there are still, uh, homeowners, property owners from Sandy that still have not been paid, which is just dumbfounding because it's, that was almost five years ago and they still have not been paid. And so there's a giant bureaucracy. So introducing them as a reinsurer, I think, uh, creates the opportunity for politicians to kind of get in there and create an additional bureaucracy on top of the insurance companies. Um, I, I, am almost leaning towards insurer of last resort and just let the private market handle, handle everything because, uh, capacity is plentiful. And now with tools like Insight Pro, we, you know, we have the ability to assess the risk. Yep, absolutely. And the, uh, the, the, the risk, um, diversification for, for insurers in, in flood is also pretty sophisticated. The international reinsurance scene is very well developed for handling flood. There's 
cat bonds, the ILS market is getting very sophisticated as well as far as um, diversifying risk that way. So there probably is no need for a reinsurance pool with the maturity of the reinsurance that's available out there right now. No, I agree. I agree. So, Ivan, uh, we now transition over to a new part of the show. Um, let's see if we can get this right. This is called, this is going to be a new feature uh, on Profiles and Risk called Rank the Risk, a game we're going to be playing with all of our guests and our co-hosts every week. So, in your honor... This game is going to be about flood. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions about flood, and you have the opportunity to rank the risk from highest risk to lowest risk. Okay. Are you ready? You know I love being I love being a guinea pig on live radio. <laughs> this is great. Well, we it's not live, so I can I can always edit this before we go on, but I think these are fairly challenging, but um, if you know, anyone that knows me knows that I'm trying to make a point. So they're fairly challenging, but answerable, but there's always a twist. Keep, keep that in mind. All right. Okay. All right. Question number one, rank these states by total dollars of insurance claims. So basically let's go back like a couple generations and I'm going to give you four states, and I want you to rank them from the state with the highest cl- claims to the state with the lowest from this list. Is it flood, claims? flood claims. Flood. This is in your honor. Flood. Okay. Louisiana, Florida, Texas, and Missouri. So, uh, Louisiana, You're right. this is, Florida, this is challenging. Texas, in Missouri, rank the risk. Are these NFIP claims only? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they have a monopoly, so okay. yeah, I, I, I took it from them. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Number one. The highest in claims, I'm going to have to say, is Florida. Number two. Number two, two would be Louisiana. Then? Th- three would be... I won't, uh, I'm going to say Texas and Missouri. Okay. The, the Missouri the Missouri answer should have been a clue that this was going to be a curveball. <laughs> yep. Because the other three states are hurricane states and Missouri isn't. Uh, number one by far is Louisiana. Like, not even, it, it, by far has had the most oh. housing claims. Number two is Texas. Number three is Missouri. Four is wow. Florida. And that's the curveball because yeah, yeah. every time I have a conversation with, you know, an insure, a reinsurer or whatever, it's always like, oh, we don't want to write in Florida. Florida is scary. Florida is actually not that bad when it comes to flood. There, there are actually lots of states. South Carolina has, has had higher claims than Florida. So the Missouri one is a curveball. And, of course, Missouri has two giant rivers that converge there. Yep. So that, I think that kind of explains it. Yeah. They've had some pretty big flood losses. Okay. Question. Well, I think that, uh, I was expecting, I was sitting on the curveball, and I think that was a fastball, 
So, oh, okay, okay. Um, I tried to outsmart you. And the reason that I went with Florida, number one, was because they've just got so many more policies than anywhere That's true. That's true. And you would think with all that exposure and all of the hur- potential hurricanes that can, they can hit Florida, uh, that they would have, um, you know, the, the highest overall hazard, but not so far, not in the last couple of generations. So because you bungled that so much, I have to give you a. Yeah, I deserve that. Okay. That was a really good question. Okay. Let's, let's try to redeem yourself. So rank these states by loss ratio. So this will be the dollar of claims divided by the dollar of premium. So sure, Louisiana might be the biggest, but maybe they're collecting the most premium and they're still very profitable, right? Uh, of course, Louisiana no, is, is, an, an, is an, yeah. in this example because <laughs> there's probably a curveball here somewhere. Okay. Oh, boy. So okay. Rank these states from highest loss ratio to lowest for these four states. Florida, New York, North Dakota and Mississippi. So this would be NFIP, the number of claims, the number of premium collected per dollar, dollar of premium, dollar of loss divided by per dollar of premium collected. Florida, New York, North Dakota, and Mississippi. So basically, number one would be, so we're starting at the highest ratio. Yeah. So this is essentially the most profitable one, right? No, the highest loss ratio. The, the, okay, the so least, this is the, the least profitable. profitable. The scariest. The scariest, right. Okay, so I would say um, I'm going to take a swing at this curveball. I'm going to go with North Dakota first. Then? And then I'm going to say Mississippi. Then? And then I'm going to say uh, North Carolina and then New York. Florida was the option. Florida and New York. Oh, Florida. Florida than New York. Okay. I think New York is probably... (laughs) Okay. Uh, Number one was Mississippi. Uh Number two, and you you, you could sense the curveball was coming, so number two is North Dakota, so I... I swat you. You got those swats. You were pretty yeah. close. You were pretty close. It was like a slide. It was a slider, not a curveball, <laughs> or changeup. Then New York, then Florida, and uh, for anyone that's listening, yes, I am making the point. Florida, you can make money writing flood in Florida. It's absolutely possible. So that's uh, that's the point I've been making on that. So there you go. Cool. Okay. Final question. Uh, just a quick. Were yeah. those were those those were four kind of spread over the whole spectrum? They're not like the top four or anything like that, right? They're not what? They're just they they're not the top four or anything like that. They're spread all over the whole spectrum of states. Yeah, right? these are not the top four. These just happen to be the four right. in order. Um, there was there were some other really really bad ones that you could squeeze in. Like I said, South Carolina is before Florida. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And of course, Louisiana is a terrible state too. So the whole Gulf area, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, terrible. Terrible when it comes to loss ratios. Okay. Uh, cool. final. I was, hoping, I, was hoping, I was hoping California would be in there because they, they're bragging about their ratio and thinking they can be better. They were in the low end. They absolutely were. And I was going to throw them in. 
there, but uh, I can't help myself by trying to make a statement. So there you go. Um, final question. Which hurricane affected the most states? From the most number of states to the least. Katrina, Sandy, you, Hurricane you, Ivan, mm-hmm. and yep. Ike. So Katrina, Sandy, Ivan, and Ike. Which state affected the most, which hurricane affected the most states? So, I can already sense I'm going to get booed again, but I'm going to say um, Sandy, because the states are so small up there, followed by Katrina with it, four, maybe five states. And then I'm going to go with um, Ivan and then Ike. Just because I have to? Although you didn't get them all right, but you were so close that I had to give you a cheer. Um, So Sandy, 16 states, just a massive storm. Um, Ivan, number two, if you recall. Really? Ivan Ivan kind of circled around and kind of did a bunch of stuff. So Sandy hit 16 states. Ivan hit 15 Whoa. Yeah, I was I was surprised by that. Um, then Ike. Ike hit nine. Huh. And Katrina was last. And Katrina hit six. So this is this is, you know, the, it's a hurt, you know, um, basically the probably the number of um, states that actually produce some kind of loss. And I think Sandy, everyone knows. Ivan surprised me. Fifteen states. That's a that's a wide swath. So. Anyways, uh, thank you for participating in Rank the Risk. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and the one lesson to take away from that is you've got to watch those Ivans. That's right. Watch out for Ivans. All of them. Ivan, Ivan Hurricane, Ivan Maddox, Ivan Putski. <laughs> Do you know who that is? Nope. We'll, we'll put that on the show notes. Ivan Putski is a profession, former professional wrestler. His finishing move was the, uh, the Polish hammer or something like that. Anyways. Uh, so Ivan um, thanks for being on Profiles at Risk for for the audience if someone wanted to get a hold of you how can people reach you Uh, LinkedIn Ivan Maddox Um, how do you spell your last name M-A-D-D-O-X or just do a Google search for the risks of hazard that'll come up pretty fast Um, or no, I'm not going to put my phone number on it. On <laughs> I think that works. Or through, well. the, or through the blog. We'll put, we'll put all of that on the show notes so that uh, people can reach out to you. Yeah. So yeah, this is, cool. this has been a special episode of profiles and risk. The INS nerds podcast. My guest has been Ivan Maddox of intermap. Ivan, thanks for being on profiles and risk. Thanks, Nick. It's really been a pleasure. Those are tough questions. <laughs> Wait till next time. Thanks, Ivan. Oh, boy. I'll study. I'll study. Thanks a lot. Cheers.